Hey, good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. Tonight we're looking at the Sabhasava Sutta again, the second of the seven means of overcoming the defilements in the mind. And so again, all, all seven of these means come together to form a comprehensive practice, which maybe at the end we can just summarize again, recap. But the first one was dasana, which is what we're doing to, to come to see the truth, to see reality, to uh, see the folly of our ways and to see the the danger and the disadvantages of clinging to things that ultimately lead to more suffering. And to see freedom really, to come to see what it means to be free from suffering. Samwara, the second one is Samwara, which Translate as restraint or restraining. So this, these are the, or this is the abandoning of the asava through restraint. Restraint is an interesting word. It, it. Uh, kind of implies a sort of a wanting to do something but not doing it, right? You restrain yourself against your will, generally. It's not a bad word. I think it's not a bad translation, but we have to be, care be careful. There are five kinds of samwara, five kinds of restraint according to the texts, <coughs> the commentaries, I think. Sila samwara, through, through morality. So this would be, this would be against your, your will, against your, your instinct. You want to do something, you want to kill, you want to steal, you want to lie and cheat. But, uh, through through the existence of precepts, through the existence of rules and religion, really, you you stop yourself, and you can think about why that is. Maybe it's because you have faith in the Buddha. Maybe it's because you uh, have faith in the practice and. Maybe it's because you have seen some truth and because of that truth it gives you confidence and, and makes you comfortable keeping the, the rules. could just be because you know, you're told, hey, if you want to progress in this teaching, you have to keep these rules. And so 
you want to give this teaching a shot, so you keep the rules. Sila is a fairly poor way of restraining, but uh, it, it, it is practically effective in the short term. And in this context, we're talking about restraint of the senses, so morality does help you restrain your senses in a very roundabout way. Uh, so if you keep yourself from getting caught up in in unwholesomeness well then you're you're restraining the senses in in a sense that you're uh, you're not going to experience a lot of uh, distracting and and uh, problematic states you know if you don't if you take if you if you don't well the five precepts may be a little bit extreme but if you if you keep the eight precepts for example then you don't engage in entertainment and because you don't engage in entertainment you're you're actually restraining your senses from seeing very pleasant things and hearing very pleasant sound, so it's roundabout, but it is a sort of a restraint. When you take only to eat in the morning, then you're restraining the tongue, right? The pleasure that comes from taste, you're restraining that. And you can see this quite clearly as you meditate, you in the evening feel hungry or have cravings for delicious food. You can see how that sort of restraint works. It's a sort of with a withdrawal that we we go through in the meditation course, and you start to see how how addicted we are through the senses to things that really don't actually satisfy us. Because then in the morning you get the food and you realize it's not really that. Yeah. It's kind of a, uh, it's a fever, the Buddha says here. Parilaha. Parilaha means fever or heat. Or just distress, burning really. Literally it means burning. We're, we burn, we burn with the desire, right? So Sila Samwara, then there's uh, Sati Samwara is the real one. Sati Samwara is, well, Sati Samwara is only temporary as well, right? Sati Samwara <coughs> is what we're doing during the meditation practice. It's one part of our practice, one aspect of it. Because you need to restrain yourself in order to see clearly. It's like the focusing if you just allow your senses to go free then they get clouded by desire and aversion when you say to yourself seeing seeing you keep you're you're restraining the mind it's a different kind of a restraint to the senses because here you're not concerned with what the eye sees you can see all the beautiful things and all the terrible things uh, you like 
you're restraining through filtering out the defilements so when you see the beautiful thing it's just seeing it's a different kind of restraint it's like uh, putting a muzzle on a dog and take the dog out but it's muzzled or it's like declawing a cat which is apparently very painful so don't do that although it's interesting if you did if you could declaw a cat might make the cat more wholesome I don't know about that whole thing <coughs> but if you declaw the cat then the cat can do all the things a cat does and, and doesn't get into as much mischief or it, it gets into the mischief but doesn't right you see you're taking the poison you're taking away the the problem So sati samura, this is this is a big part of what we do. It's important <coughs> because it allows you to see your experiences clearly. It allows you to see the things that you cling to objectively. When you do that, when you when you accomplish that, the third one is jnana samura, which comes from sati. And this isn't theoretical or, or something you have to believe. This is really an incredible truth that when you do restrain the mind through sila and, and sati, there arises jnana, there arises knowledge. Come to see some things about your situation that were not clear before, that the things that you cling to are not worth clinging to. That these experiences of seeing and hearing and smelling Really anything that we like or want When we start to be objective about it We come to see they're not worth liking or wanting Or, th or that we dislike, right? Pain, for example All of the thoughts and memories or plans and dreams That would vex and burn, consume our minds with the burning of passion and aversion, the fires of defilement. When you start to see them objectively, then you free yourself from this. So jnana samwara, the, the knowledge of the, uh, that these things are not worth clinging to, the knowledge that our defilements are just burning it's a sort of a restraint because it's the most important one I mean really jnana samura is, is a true restraint it's the restraint of an enlightened being or just a, a meditator really um, when you start to see clearly then there's no question about whether you'll engage in problematic activities whether you'll get caught up in the senses right? whether you'll cause yourself suffering cause suffering for others because knowledge wisdom has shown you hey that only leads to suffering <coughs> it's a wonderful thing that true knowledge true wisdom does free you from it does make you disinclined to cause suffering for yourselves or others 
So sati sam sila samara sati samara jnana samara kanti samara is another one. Kanti samara kanti samara and virya samara. These are two other kinds of restraint. So kanti is restraint through patience. That's another. It's, I think you could call it another important aspect of the practice. I mean, it it really it relies upon mindfulness, but mindfulness is a sort of a patience. I, mean, I guess how you differentiate it here is this sense of putting up with something. I think it comes very much in, in, in accompanied by mindfulness. If you really want to have patience, true patience, you need mindfulness. But this sense of seeing things that are attractive and not being attracted to them, that's patience. I mean, I think maybe in a more simple way it just means you want something, but you don't go after it. You be patient with the wanting. And that, that maybe relates a lot more to uh, being mindful of reactions, right? So you see something and then there's the liking of the seeing. You see something beautiful, you like it. But being mindful of the liking, that's a sort of a patience. It's a restraint of the senses in a different way in that you're not actually restraining the senses. You've kind of missed the boat. And uh, you, uh, you've gone on to liking or disliking the defilements have arisen, but then you're patient with them. So instead of you like something, you want something, and you chase after it, or you dislike something, and so you try and destroy it, or run away from it. No, you're you're impatient with it. Which is, I think, even that is still important. But much more important is learning what we call anulomika kanti, which comes from sati and and banya. You be mindful, and you gain wisdom, and there's this uh, con conforming patience. It's just a, a general sense of not reacting to things. And you are able to bear things that would normally make you stressed because, uh, because you've come to see that they're not worth clinging to, that it's not worth getting stressed or upset about them. And virya samara, virya samara might be this sort of uh, intense suppressing where you just clench your teeth, grin and bear it, grit, grin and bear it, that's it. And, and just buckle down and, and, and bear it. Use effort to restrain your senses. I think uh, maybe in the worst case, this is when someone is, when there's a sound that's going to make you upset, and so you just try and block it out, or you, there's a sight that you want to see or don't want to see, so you close your eyes so you won't see it. Or maybe there's some situation and you run away from it. I don't know exactly what Vidya Samurai is. In different kind of ways of using effort to restrain your senses. Restraint of the senses is 
I mean, in many ways, it's just another way of talking about my about mindfulness practice, as I said. The real point here is that this is our our boundary, right? This is our our this is the the border of border between reality and illusion, the border between ultimate reality and conceptual reality. Beyond these six senses, there's only concepts. And that's not saying anything about reality in the sense of what really exists. Again, getting back to this philosophical paradigm shift. Uh, it's, it's simply that psychologically there's a difference in terms of how we react to reality uh, there's a difference between reacting on this side of the border and that side of the border meaning within the six senses and outside of the six senses when you focus on an experience in the six senses the mind uh, that, that has implications on the mind that are different from the implications or the, the, the um, effects that come from focusing on a concept. When you focus on a concept, you get caught up in uh, abstracts. People, places, things, ideas, philosophy, and, and all sorts of complications. Uh, you get caught up in, in your own ideas of how things are. Right. Reality becomes twisted, it, it's twistable, malleable. There's imagination, There's so you look at a person and you can think, boy, that person's really a good person, good friend of mine. And they're just the best person in the world. And then suddenly they do something terrible and you're all disappointed and shocked, right? Because you had this idea about reality. This is why concepts are problematic. They don't, they don't actually play out in, uh, in, in reality, whereas experiences do. And when you, when you focus on experiences, the mind learns something. It, it, it learns uh, it, it learns the mechanics kind of like quantum mechanics or you know, physics, physics and that kind of thing, the mechanics of physics. But there's the mental mechanics, the mechanics of the mind and the, the mechanics of experience. You see how experience works and there is a mechanics to it. There are causes and effects. You see, when you do this, this happens. When this happens, and there's this reaction, and there's that result. So restraint of the senses, in, 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 in the most important sense, it means staying within the senses. During the meditation course, we try to stay within the senses. Our intention is to try and learn the fundamentals of, of reality from an experiential point of view. We're trying to 
understand our psychology, understand our minds, understand our experience. Because any other understanding is problematic. If, when we talk about understanding, we're talking about me, mine, right? From a personal point of view, not in the sense of self or soul or that kind of thing, but what that means is that knowledge based on concepts or impersonal knowledge is kind of ridiculous because that knowledge, the effects of it are, are felt by oneself. So knowledge from an experiential point of view is, is quite different from intellectual knowledge or, or this idea that I'm giving you now. You know. True knowledge comes from comes from experience and so it's very important to guard the senses in these many different ways you know there are different ways to guard the senses but ultimately as a means of keeping you within the realm of, of the senses I mean, one of the most important things the Buddha said is let seeing be seeing let hearing be hearing let sensing be sensing, let thinking be thinking Thinking especially I mean most of our senses nowadays Most of our sensual experience is actually mental We think a lot Human beings have very strong sixth sense In terms of the thought process It's the sixth sense so when we talk about the senses, we're not just talking about the physical world around us. We're also talking about the realm of our thoughts. Thinking about the past, thinking about the future. Fantasizing, thinking about ourselves, philosophizing, dreaming. All of this is sensual. It's the sense. It's the sense of thought. Let it just be thought. When we start to focus on the content, then our mind gets fixed, focused on a on a on a on a thing that doesn't really exist, and it's malleable, and we can turn it into something that seems makes us think we're in control. And uh, gives entities gives essence to things hey that person and they're really good or hey this food and it's really delicious and then you eat it and it's actually kind of disappointing then boy this makes me happy right? you get all sorts of ideas reality and and concept are two very different things so if you stay focused on senses then you see what's really happening you're able to see experience, you're able to see reality. I'm not sure. I mean obviously all this it's only words. You have to experience it for yourself. But guarding the senses is a very important part of our practice. It's one aspect of meditation and it's in a practical sense, like in terms of Walking around, not looking at everything, not staring, not letting your senses wander. When you see, don't just look at it. Even just guarding your eyes, no? 
It's very useful in meditation. In a big meditation center, it's recommended to not look around, not even make eye contact. Some meditation centers don't allow eye contact. That's pretty hardcore. But for this reason, it's a means of guarding the senses, even in a roundabout way. It doesn't really ultimately fix the problem, but can be useful sort of as a support for your practice. Uh, because then, as the Buddha says, the bother, the vexation and burning that comes from comes from not guarding the senses. You just avoid it all. And your practice is simpler, easier, more efficient until you can restrain your mind through knowledge and then you have ultimate efficiency and, and purity and, and peace perfect restraint without effortless restraint really because there's no there's no effort needed when you know something is cause for suffering you don't you don't go there anyway so many different kinds of restraint but restraint is good buddha said sadhu sadhu i can't remember the pali but it's like uh, good is restraint in general that's basically what he said so that's the dhamma for tonight for some questions I'm not going to answer all questions there's a lot of questions and got to be a little bit vigilant unfortunately I'm not just going to answer speculative I think speculative is out if someone says hey I wonder yeah, you're not really good enough much more interested in, hey, I'm having this problem, can you help me? Okay, so I want to order the Pali Canon series. Some of the books seem to be connected. There, are, If you want to order the Pali Canon series, you should order the four Nikayas, which is the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses, the Majima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya, the numbered he calls them the numbered discourses and the Sangyutta Nikaya is the connected discourses the numerical discourses and the, the connected discourses that's what you should order if you want he didn't do the Diga Nikaya it's someone else but it's also it's the same publishers you might as well get the, the Diga Nikaya as well so that's the four you should get There'll be no overlap. I mean, there'll be a lot of overlap because a lot of the suttas are in different places, but that's the full set. I mean, the fifth. there's the fifth Nikaya, is the fifth this sutta set, but it's a whole bunch of little books and the translators are... Well, it's hard to get a full set of the Gudaka Nikaya. It's not that necessary either. But the Dhammapada is in there, the Jataka, the the Udana, 
the Itivuttaka, those four are pretty good books, good to get translations of those. Okay, and there's two questions, there's another question here. I had a thought, well, I'm not interested. Sorry. wasn't a question, it was a thought, and then it was, what do you think? I think as little as possible. Apart from being mindful, is there anyone, anything one could attempt to counter complacency that sets in when the practice is actually going well? You don't have to try and run away from complacency. I mean, complacency is just a thing you're saying to me. What's actually going on in the mind is what you have to worry about. The thing is, the mind changes very quickly. You know, things are going good, the mind is in a different state than when things are going bad. When things are going bad, it's in a quite different state from when things are going good. And then there's a, there's many, many different states of mind, and we're we're not quick enough to catch the next state, and we get caught up. And it's learning how to how to catch up, how to keep up with the mind and with the changes of the mind. Don't don't get don't get make it too complicated. There's the four satipatthana, and whatever is there, be mindful of it. If you say, "Well, I don't want to be mindful," what does that mean? I mean, or you aren't mindful. Well, why? What, what's going on in your mind? Vimangsa is a good one to reflect on what's going on in the mind that is preventing you from being mindful. I can't stop thinking about a world. Hey, didn't we do this one? Wasn't didn't we have this question before? I think I answered that one. When pursuing a romantic interest, one cannot help but be attached to that person's presence, form of desire, and clinging. But then. Do we, how then do we love without clinging? Mindfully, I mean, love doesn't require clinging. Love is, it's a, it's a totally different, um, it's a different my thought process. Love is like, I want you to be happy, or I wish good for you, or I think of you as a good person. Um, desire is I mean, the, the problem is when you love someone you're thinking about them and when you think about someone it's very easy to be attracted to them but you can't be you know you're generally attracted to the body and so love and I mean they're just really just words but which is why we use metta metta doesn't mean love it means friendliness so it's, it, are you being friendly or are you attracted to the person? Two very different things. But yes, it's it's hard because again, when you're friendly towards someone, why well, you're 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 in contact with them, and when you're in contact with someone, it's quite easy to become attracted to them if they're attracted attractive. During a meeting in a meditation course between teacher and student, what is the student supposed to say or describe? What if nothing has changed from the day before and they don't have anything to say about their practice? 
If nothing has changed, I mean that's fairly rare that nothing has changed or that there's nothing out of the ordinary, nothing interesting to talk about, but it doesn't really matter. The teacher will, I mean, it's the teacher's job to keep pushing the student. If nothing's changed, then well, maybe they're not being pushed hard enough. So you have to challenge the meditator sometimes. Questions aren't updating anymore. I wonder if that means we're... I'm logged out. Is it not possible to have a shorter course for beginners? 21 days is not accessible for many people, as most people only have 14 days of vacation a year. It's possible, it's just you won't it's it's not arbitrary it's, it's quite challenging to get where we need to go in 14 days most people can't do it or a lot of people can't do it some people could if you're very dedicated you probably could but um, so a way of doing that is doing an online course the way we've been doing it many people actually have completed the foundation course in less than 14 days because they've done the online course and we do the online course one week uh, we meet once a week and in one week they do one or two hours a day and by going through the course that way they're able to prepare quite fairly well for it and then at the very least they've got the whole technique down and then they can go through the technique intensively in about 12 days. And the other thing is you're welcome to come for 14 days if that's how you want to do it, but it's very unlikely that in 14 days I would put you through the whole course. It just would be too much. Could you please provide an example to clearly understand the use of attention in the context of mindfulness? What is the Pali term for attention? It's not a word that I really use. I think I'm going to not answer this one because I just wouldn't use that word. Uh, I think yoni uh, so manasikara is maybe a good a good. Um, Attention, manasikara might be a good translation. Attention might be a good translation for manasikara. It often is. I mean, manasikara is often translated as attention. Um, wise attention, unwise attention. It's not really. It's not. It's not that good of a translation. Wouldn't worry about attention so much. Uh, as uh, I mean, just words. You need to grasp the object clearly and pay attention. It's a, certainly a part of it, but uh, more importantly, is objectivity. You know, experience the object as it is. It might be a good translation, a good sort of word to use. I think it's a bit misleading, though. 
or a bit vague maybe. Can you have aversion to a pleasant feeling? I mean, it wouldn't be a pleasant feeling if you had aversion towards it. You can have aversion indirectly. You can have aversion towards the idea of the pleasant feeling. Um, so you dislike the idea of liking. When you think about that thing that you like, you dislike that. You dislike the fact that you like it. And the fact that you like it isn't the liking. Suppose you, you you're really attracted to someone but they've dumped you and then you get angry about the fact that you're still in love with them, that kind of thing. But it's not the love that you're angry. It's not the feeling comes that the love comes up and you get angry, you know. Or you do, but it's after the fact. You get angry about the thought, hey, you realize I love that person and that realization is what makes you angry. You get angry when you realize that. So I, mean, I guess I, I guess you can call that aversion to a pleasant feeling, but it's not exactly when a pleasant feeling arises. We call it pleasant because there's a, a really we call it pleasant because there's a, a, des a desire attached to it. No, that's not entirely true. But no, you can't directly have aversion towards it. If an arahant or a Buddha, I'm not going to answer Alzheimer's questions. I've answered these and they seem to keep coming back and I don't see how useful they are. Are you an arahant or a Buddha? If you are, then worry about it. But if you are, then you wouldn't worry about it. So it's really not that useful of a question. I followed the eight precepts for a day and I became so exhausted and stressed. Mm. Wow. Oh. Withdrawal. It's, I mean, yes. It's a sort of a withdrawal. That's really all there is to say about that. The eight precepts are designed to put you through withdrawal from the things, the stimulation. So now you see it's all just a drug habit. You're, talking, you're dealing with all these mental drugs. The eight precepts is a detox. There are several stories about people who had a very bad history in their lives before reaching enlightenment. Could it be that the more you suffer in life, the easier it could be to reach enlightenment? I mean, it can be. It's a cause for people to seek out enlightenment, seeing suffering. Um, I don't think it's the more you suffer, the easier it is. Uh, I think seeing the consequences of your actions as No, seeing suffering, yeah, sure, if you've got strong suffering, it can make it easier. It quite often makes it easier. Could we be living in a computer simulation? I mean, I don't want to answer that question, but the fact that it brings you great anxiety is interesting, and you should focus on that anxiety. If you're mindful of that anxiety, you'll feel better. It doesn't really matter whether we're in a simulation or not. It doesn't matter, because still... Whether we're in a simulation or not, it's still just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. This is what Descartes got way back when. Descartes said, hey, I could be tricked about everything except the fact that I'm conscious, except this experience. So it doesn't matter whether we're in a simulation or not, really. We can't be. 
S computer simulations don't exist. What exists is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. How did the world come to be in Buddhism? The world, the earth, uh, devolved, you know, just naturally, really. But a lot of it had to do, it was in conjunction with the mind. Our minds became more corrupt as the earth became more corrupt. This was a corruption, a, a coarsification, becoming more coarse, less refined as we... Um, as we develop greater desires and attachments and so on. I, was, I may be a little bit vague. I mean, there's not really... Well, we're not really concerned about the origin of the world, but there are some stories like that about how the earth came to be the way it is. Okay, so there's all the questions. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good night.